as you turn there, I want to ask you, if you were to write a song that told the story of the world, what would that song be? What would the, what would the lyrics have? I'm not asking you to sing this song. Some of you guys have no business uh, singing. I'm just asking you to write it. Right? What would, the, what would the, the lyrics be if you were to try and, you know, poetically capture the story of the world, all the highs and the lows, all the, the joys and beauties that we find in our world and all the pains and injustices, like how would you try and capture that? I think it's important to ask these sort of big questions. We don't, we don't ask these big questions often enough. We don't put ourselves into this sort of big picture story of what life is all about. And if you're here today, whether you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I think it's a worthwhile question to consider. You don't have to be a Christian to answer this question. How would you try and tell and capture the story of the world in a song? What would that, what would that look like? And that's what, for, for Christians, that is what the book of Psalms is. This is our song, our song book that tries to capture the, the story of the world, all the different emotions, the highs, the lows, the realities, the beauties, the pains, all these things in song form. And very specifically, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are like the singles on the album. So when an artist puts out an album, you got some that get pre-released. Those are the ones that go on the radio, right? Those are the, the hits that it sort of tell you this is what the album is about. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are meant to be the singles on this album. They're, they tell the story in their complete entirety. So Psalm 1, which I think you guys read last week or really recently, Psalm 1 is from an individual lens. And it talks about the, the way of the wicked and the way of righteousness. And it says, hey, this is the story of the world. And it tries to capture that in a song. There's the way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. And then Psalm 2, which is what we're going to read today, zooms out the lens beyond just an individual and tries to tell the story of the world or, or like on, in terms of people all together, and says, hey, there's two ways to live. Either submitted to the kingdom of Jesus or in rebellion to his reign. And so I'm asking, what is the song of the world? Psalm 2, that's what we're going to read. It provides the lyrics. And if I were to title this song, I would title it, Let Earth Receive Her King. Let Earth Receive Her King. So let's look at the lyrics of this. The first three verses begins this, saying that the world stands in rebellion to God. And that is why this song needs to be sung. Here's the first three verses. It says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when you read this, a couple things to note. First, that word rage in verse 1, if you look at that, that word rage, the idea in that word isn't necessarily anger. I think that's what we comes into our mind when we hear the word rage. The idea there isn't anger as much as it is activity, motion, 
like a frantic energy uh, that's like full of unsettled. That might be another way of trying. And, and we're trying to prove. And so there's the rage is this sort of chaotic motion that characterizes humanity. It's saying if you were to take the zoom out the lens and just look at humanity, it's just a bunch of like frantic energy trying to prove yourself and trying to establish yourself in the world. And it says that this work of the, all the energy, all the toil, all the anxiety is actually in opposition to God. It's working in opposition to God. That's what it says there. Why do the people uh, rage? They plot and they set themselves against the Lord. So out the gate, what this psalm is teaching you and I is this, is that opposition and struggle are at the heart of understanding our world. And what this means, and it's really important because if you want to live wisely in this world, you need to know this. If you want to understand the world, you must recognize that there is a conflict at work at the, at the heart of every single generation. If you're trying to tell the story of the world, if it doesn't have this conflict, you're missing it. And this conflict is between, it says in verse 2, the kingdom of this world versus the Lord, and then it has this phrase, and against his anointed. So that's the second piece we need to understand. Okay, rage, what does that mean? And then in this word anointed, what does anointed mean? Well, there's a, a kind of a broad understanding in which anointed is Israel's king. Whoever is Israel's king, David was the one who was anointed, and everyone in his line, that's anointing, that's the, the king. But the word anointed there, in Hebrew, it's, it's that word Messiah. In Greek, it's translated Christ, and the, the idea here is, is the language builds, so it's saying, yes, in a broad sense, that the kingdom of Israel, and it's talking about Israel specifically, but there's this sense in which the language is building because it's what it's pointing to is the Messiah, the Christ, and so the, the picture might be that there's this opposition at all times between God's people and, and the world, but uh, this past week, I had coached my, my son's kindergarten basketball team, and then immediately I went to the Laker versus uh, Mavericks game. And as I went from like, okay, guys, like this, you know, and they're just off the foot and everywhere to watching Luka Doncic and, and LeBron James and these, like, the best players in the world, and it's like, yeah, they're playing the same game, but not really, okay? Like, so there's traveling in one, and then there's five-year-olds in the other, for my basketball fans. Okay. Um, no one got that. That's fine. Um, so this is kind of this building thing where it says, yeah, it, it, it's like the kings of Israel, but they're the kindergartners. What it's really pointing to is, and this is where the New Testament is emphatic and very clear. In fact, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. The anointed in verse 2 is Jesus. Let, let me make this very clear. This is Acts chapter 4. If you're able to flip there quickly, you can read it. If not, you can just listen. Acts chapter 4, the early church is praying, and it says this. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all the world. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then it goes on and it says, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your world, word with all uh, boldness. Oh, actually, no, I, I was reading the wrong part. My bad. Verse 24 is where we want to begin. Uh, Sovereign Lord, here's their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. That makes much more sense to read that part. Um, And what it's saying is this, is that this is the fulfillment of that Psalm 2 moment. It's saying they were gathered together, both Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, against you and, and your anointed against Jesus. And so it's saying this, that the world stands against God and his Christ, his king. That is Jesus. And my question to you is, do you understand this? That this is the energy at some level that is at work in our world, is there is a conflict at work between the the nations, between our world, against God and his king. Jesus himself says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And James says that friendship with the world is enmity, or or you're at odds with God. We need to understand this. Now listen, as I say that, I'm, I'm on edge when it comes to, I'm not trying to create or come in here and try and spark Generations Church to, get involved in a big culture war. That's not what I'm trying to teach. Uh, There's a lot of damage, I think, that can be done when we get, like, when we put cultural war issues before the the gospel. But sometimes, here's my my plea to you, in our effort not to be militant weirdos, right, we miss that sometimes the Bible is militant in its language, causing us to see there's a struggle and a war that's at the heart of our world. And if you don't understand that there's a conflict and you're always trying to fit in and get along, and cre- like, you're not going to understand the world you live in well. And the heart of that conflict is in verse 3. The heart of that conflict is verse 3, where it says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The idea there, it's like, is God is like tying me up and we need to, he's restricting me. He's not for my good. And so everything that he speaks in his kingdom is limiting my freedom. That's the idea there. And so the call, the heart, the struggle is to let us burst their bonds so that we can be free. His reign is oppressive, and you need to rid himself of, your, of his presence. This is the lie that's been at work since the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, that Old temptations, did God really say? Which is this idea, is he really for your good? He's holding out on you. He's restricting you. Burst his bonds. Be free. And we see this in kings and rulers and nations. There's obviously like the, the global, like the bad guys, the, the Kim Jong-uns of the world who throw tantrums and they seek to flex their power. And like, okay, I could see that playing out. But it's easy to see there, but... but it's actually present in every nation. No one does justice, the scriptures say. 
And violence marks our world. And if you were trying to tell the story and write a song, you'd have to speak the human pride. You wouldn't tell the story of the world rightly if you didn't talk about human pride, that we try and assert ourselves. And we see this in broader, like, cultural places as we look out. It was the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche who said, hey, guys, that's my paraphrase of Nietzsche. He says, hey, guys, we've built this world without God. And he's talking about the industrial revolution and all the things that we invented. And, like, we've, you know, we used to rely on, we used to pray, God, you know, we need rain to water the crops. And now we have these fancy irrigation things. We've got our tools. Like, we've built this world. We don't need God. So we've built this world without God. He's dead. And then he says, so let's get rid of his shadow. That's what Nietzsche says. Don't be weak. Go be strong. Throw off the shackles of oppression and be free. And that, and that philosophy then grew and shaped a lot of the morality of our age today. And you see this, like literally we're living in the wake of a sexual revolution. So the idea that God has created sexual activity exclusively for the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife, that is now seen as outdated and oppressive, even repressive, it's holding back, and even harmful. And the song of our days, let us burst their bonds and those cords. We see these lyrics, let us burst their bonds. We see it in in all sorts of different leaders. We've, I've already mentioned like in nations, but also in businesses, in the streets, in the home, and honestly, even in the church. Where, where you, we're called by God to wield authority for the blessing of other people, to serve and to lay down our lives, to let love and humility be the ethic that leads us. But instead, we build brand and platform. We abuse or we hide abuse all for the sake of keeping our power. And then even if you're not a leader in some capacity, in just in our modern world, in the day-to-day life, there's sort of what I would call a modern apathy. It just kind of hangs over everything like a cloud. It's just like the weather. You know, you walk outside, it's kind of gloomy, it just kind of hangs over everything. There's sort of an apathy that hangs over our culture. A kind of Lazy, disinterested, comfort-seeking, little regard for justice and righteousness, a life that pursues cheap pleasures, loves to be distracted by inconsequential things, plods along, we gather little toys for our life, and then we're apathetic, we're unawake to the reality and the holiness and the presence of a living God. And this is the world do my thing. God, leave me alone. And the question at the heart of this is saying, why do the nations rage? Why is there trying to, all this activity trying to assert myself? And you see, again, in all sorts of different cultures, it doesn't look the same in every place. But it's, if you were to try and capture what is humanity, that's what we've all been doing. And so then the next question, if that's this question, they're saying, why do the nations rage? And they're asking, okay, well, then what will God do in light of this in response? And the reality, here's the kind of the second piece, is that God is unmoved. And there's all, they picture there's all this like energy, all this activity, and God is unmoved. He's not panicked. He's not caught off guard. Instead, it says what God does in response to our rebellion 
It's hilarious. He laughs. He laughs. Look at verse 4. You see this in verses 4 through 6. He says, oh, 4 and 5. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. We'll hold on verse 6 for a second. He laughs. Now, he doesn't laugh like rebellion, like our issues that we're carrying around. He doesn't laugh because he thinks it's funny. That's not the idea there. But it's more like the idea when it says the Lord laughs, it's more like, um, are you serious, bro? That's, that's the laugh. Uh, I, I have a friend who's really advanced uh, in jujitsu. He fought like MMA, like some of, some of that stuff. Um, he was telling me about that culture, that world. I don't know anything beyond what he told me. Uh, if you're sizing me up and you think you can beat me up, you're probably right. Like, I don't know. I don't have, like, some secret knowledge of, of, of MMA, jiu-jitsu stuff. But he was telling me about this world. And, and he says, hey, you know, in jiu-jitsu, they have, a, you know, this whole belt system. I think in a lot of martial arts, they have the belt system. I know, all I know is there's, like, black belt and there's other belts. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, some of you are mad that that's all I know, and everyone else is like, no, that's all I know. Okay. And he was telling me, he was talking about the culture within that, this. And he says, within this belt system, he says, it's not cool to challenge someone who's a belt above you. And, and it's not because they're proud or because they're afraid of a challenge or because it's like, you don't upset the fragile status quo, right? It, it's more like if you challenge someone who's a belt higher than you, the question is, are you stupid or are you arrogant? Because it's one of them. You, you don't, you, like if you're just going around challenging black belts, you're either stupid or you're arrogant. There's, li- there's literally in the belt system levels to this, right? And, and so what he's saying, the Lord laughs because the rebellion is doomed to fail. It's like, what are you guys doing is kind of the, the idea there. What do, you think you're going, what do you think this accomplishes, this tantrum that you're throwing God is unmoved. So he laughs, and then in verse 5, it says, he will speak to them in his fury. He will wage war back with his words. And what will he say? What is the word that he says? He will speak to them in his fury, saying, verse 6 through 9, he says, Christ is king. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The word I uh, in verse 6 is like underlined. It's, it's meant to be in opposition. So it says, hey, you're doing this and that, but... I, bold, underlined, I will respond in this way. And what will he do? He says he will set his king on Zion, his holy hills. Now, now when will God do this? The answer to that is he's, he already has. He's already done, verse 6. The, the coronation of the king. He's saying, you're raging. I'm laughing. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my king in place. And for us reading this now, we ask, okay, when is God going to do this? He's actually already done this. Look at Acts chapter 
13. Again, the New Testament is always coming back to this. Paul is preaching the gospel, and he says this, and we bring you the good news, this is verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So what he's saying there, if you didn't catch that, is this, is that, that when Jesus Christ came and was crucified, and in his resurrection, that was Psalm 2 coming into effect. The nations raging against the king and against his anointed, crucifying the son. And God saying, no, 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 I will set my king on my holy hill. And raising Jesus up from the dead. In the cross and resurrection, God establishes his king who has defeated death. Now there is no other power that stands against him. He is the king of the universe. Jesus is God's son who has come to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that was God's plan for this world full of opposition, a world full of sin and rebellion, is to come and make it right through Jesus. And once you understand that, if you are familiar with your Bible, a bunch of things are going to start clicking for you, right? So uh, Psalm 2, you see this all throughout the scriptures. When Jesus is baptized and in his transfiguration, you hear the voice, this is my son. In his crucifixion, you see the rebellion and the rage and the plotting together of the whole Jew and Gentile. The nations are gathered. In his resurrection, he is set on his holy hill. And now it says that the nations are his inheritance. That's what the psalm says. And Jesus is king over the whole world. And this all builds, if you're kind of tracing Psalm 2 throughout the Bible, it builds to the very end, Revelation 19, where it reads this. 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, those are jewels and crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And listen to this. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the language of Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's saying God has set his king, who is king over every power, every authority, every dominion in this world. God's kingdom is what's going to come to pass. And everything else you see, you know, nations rise and fall. Charismatic leaders come and go. Fat, like cultural trends moralities shift and shape. Like all these things are just the world trying to establish and what works and what doesn't. And you say, no, 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 my king is on the throne. And so then our response, our question is this to say, okay, I don't care what any other leader says or any other king, cultural icon or hero. Like what does the king say? 
That should be our response. What does the king say? What does Jesus say? And that's, that's the kind of like the, the therefore, right? Verse 10 says, now therefore. Here, in light of this story of the world, here's what this means. This is where the song leads. This invitation, as I titled it, let earth receive her king. If that's our response, okay. If Jesus truly is the king, then let earth receive her king. Verse 10 and through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is ultimately the choice that is before you. You either refuse Christ or you take refuge in Christ. You either refuse Christ or you take refuge in Christ. Christ, again, as in Jesus Christ, uh, and the Christ is not an add-on to his name. It's in reference, it's Psalm 2, God's anointed king. And so if it's a helpful little device for you, when you read the Bible, just read Jesus, and when it says Jesus Christ, replace Christ with Psalm 2. <laughs> it's like Jesus, Psalm 2, right? That's what, like, like, if it helps fill in the gaps for you of what that word means, that's the idea there. Here's where it just really presses in on us. Is there are many who desire a Jesus who saves them from the penalty of sin, but who still insist or persist, I should say insist on persisting in their sin. Let me say that again because I don't want my words. There, There are many who desire a Jesus who saves them from the penalty of sin, but still insist on persisting in their sin. In my experience, in our church that I pastor and lead, I would say that this is one of the things we're all constantly having to uproot. And so I don't know if this is true here, but if you would allow me just to be tender with you and to speak this, I know this is true, I would say, in the American church as whole, the average American Christian, Christian, understands grace to be good news, everyone. God is chill. rather than a trembling, kiss the sun, take refuge reality. We, we have some confusion with this. We don't know what to do with this. We actually get confused, I think, because we read in the Bible language about like reverence for God. And we're like, okay, I understand that. And then we read and we read language about intimacy with God. And we're like, okay, that's awesome, that's good news. And we, we think they're opposites. And we, we kind of struggle to hold these pieces together. And so it says, you know, kiss the son, intimacy, lest he be angry, reverence. And we're like, what the? So, so let me teach for a second. If your understanding of grace removes reverence, that's not grace. That's, that's patronizing. You actually have all the power in that. You're like treating God like a little kid who's sharing his candy. Like, oh, thanks, bud. Speaking of God's love for you and his care for you, which let me be very clear, God loves you. Like right now, God loves you. And God cares for you. 
but, but speaking of God's love and his care for you should never minimize your reverence. It should only maximize your joy. Let me say that again. Speaking of God's love for you and his care for you should never minimize your reverence for God. It should only maximize your joy because you know the authority and the power of this king. And so when we say that he loves you, it overwhelms your senses. That just makes you feel good for a moment. And outside of Jesus, to speak very plainly, outside of Jesus, you are under God's wrath. You stand in opposition to God, the Holy One, as it describes here. But the good news is this, is that the God for whom you've rebelled, and we've all participated in this song, we've all sung these lyrics at some point in time, he's actually offered himself to be your refuge. That's the gospel in this message. I love the combination at the front. I love the, the combination of phrases at the very end. If you look at the last bit of verse 12, it says, His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I read, His wrath is quickly kindled, and I think, okay, run. But what it says is actually don't run away, run to. His wrath is quickly kindled, so blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In him, because that's the offer of this king. He's actually pledged himself to be your protector and your defender, and he will prevail. And we know this because this is the beautiful thing. It's saying, here's the story. It's one of rebellion. Here's what God does. He laughs. He says, what are you doing? You can't fight me. I'm going to put my king on my hill. But how does he do it? How does he set his king on his hill? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that the way that he puts his king is actually good news for you and I because the way that he came is in love and in grace through the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross where he paid for your sins. The way that God established his Messiah is through death and resurrection. Jesus represents God's people as their king and so his obedience counts as your obedience. And his death is counted as your death. His resurrection counted as your resurrection. His intimacy with the Father is now counted and shared with you, and you have intimacy with the Father. And so God's refuge, God's grace, is not an empowerment of your sinful desires. Hey, God's, God's chill, guys. Just go. No, instead, this is the beautiful, like the beauty of the true gospel is he saying, no, my kingdom, my way, what I have for you, and I've proven it because the way that I set my king was in a way of love, was it was in a way of grace, that my kingdom, my way, that, that it's not restrictive and oppressive to you, it's actually for your good. I, I'm the true king. That actually, glad submission brings great joy. And so what I want to do, just kind of hold this all together, church, is to call you to like examine your heart, to take a moment, and to sit there and say, okay, where... Where in my life is there this, um, this rebellion, this kind of this conflict? And then I want to ask you to, to repent and to take refuge in the God who loves you and the King of grace. And so as we kind of think through this, uh, there's this sort of classic trifecta of money, sex, and power, right? It's so just using those as lenses to think through these lyrics of the song. So think like money, right? And so when it comes to, to money, we're always like, we're always, it's work, work, work. 
or we're stressing over a house, whether that's the house that we bought, or we're trying to buy a house, and it's California, and we're like, should I move to Texas? And like, all those sorts of things, don't do it. Okay. Um, and there, there's, there, you know, fashion trends, and our car is breaking down, and we're stressing, and the anxiety, and, and then we, there's God's kind of call for us to, to steward money, and how we see money, and, and the, the, how it's just a tool in his hands. And we're, that's that place of tension. And in our culture, in our world, there is a story, a song that's being sung, and it's one of unhindered pursuit of wealth. Unhindered pursuit of wealth. Uh, I, I was listening to, this is Tim Keller, this isn't me, but he was just talking about uh, in his pastor. He said, man, in my, in my pastoral ministry, he said, I've, I've had over the years a number of people come and confess adultery. He said, I've never, ever had anyone come and confess grief. It's never happened. Is that because, like, nobody's greedy? No, it's because we actually have this inability even to see it. It's, it's a lot, like, more, more hidden. We think it's because we don't have a lot of money that we're not greedy. And that, that we're just, this unhindered pursuit of wealth is just like, hey, that's, that's okay. That's what I'm for. And so we accumulate, or we, maybe we're not good at accumulating, but we're working for it. <laughs> And so there's gadgets, freedom, and, and the, the needs of others, that's, that's on them, right? And God calls us, his way, his rule, his reign, is that how we use our money is that it's actually all his. And we're stewards, not owners. And we feel this when it comes to our finances. Let's talk about Sex. So uh, some of you, you are, are married, amen, and your sex life is not what you thought it would be cracked up to be. Not hearing the woos on that one. <laughs> so you're feeling kind of the, you know, or, or you're, you're single, and you're not sure that you want to be, and you're single, and you're, and you're you, you hear what God says about uh, sex being in the covenant relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife and your temptations, your desires. But we live in, in a world for, for married people, for single people, there's just like unlimited access to pornography that says, hey, come like fulfill your desires here. Come participate in this. Maybe you're gay. Which I don't, I'm, I'm just bringing that up. I'm a guest preacher so I can come and share stuff and I can leave. <laughs> But, but within the context of, of a community, we should realize that within a context community, there are people here right now, you, you have desires, you're attracted to the same sex. And, and, and we're sitting, okay, what do I do with that? And that's, and that's an honest place, an honest question. And we're reading the scriptures, what God calls for sex to be within the context of marriage between a husband and a wife and in that covenant relationship. And so for all these different categories, we're like, okay, it's only here, but maybe I'm married and it's not what I, what I want it to be, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to other people, or there's pornography that's readily available, or I'm single, for whatever reason I am, and there's all these different realities. It's like, what do I, I do with that? And it's like, you're feeling the restriction. I want this. The power. Power. Maybe you are in a position of leadership in your home, at work, in the church, we guys got some deacons up in here, right? 
We use power as a place for status to, 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 uh, to assert ourselves. That's what the rage in Psalm 2 is all about. Let me, let me prove myself. Or, or maybe you're, you're a citizen of a nation. You're patriotic. Okay, these are all great and wonderful things, but beware of this subtle working is that we put your heart in a place and, and there's things that will offer you power, security, identity, pride. In each one of these places, and I'm calling you to examine your life, each one of these places calls out to you the songs, the lyrics of Psalm 2 saying, let us burst their bonds. There are chords that are upon you. They're saying, God's not really for your good. And you need to burst free. But what you see in Psalm 2 is the, says that God just laughs. Kind of look at that from a different angle. Maybe this is a, a note of grace for us. Is that rebellion ultimately only exists because God allows it. He says, why, why do the nations rage? All this activity, all this pride. And God, it says, he sits in his holy, he, he, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Which means, all this rebellion, all these different things, it's doomed to fail. But if you can kind of see that from another angle, what this tells us about our God is that he is actually patient. He's slow to anger. He's actually full of love and compassion. Because the, the answer to this, he's saying, I'm putting my king on my hill, this is going to fail. The, the, the analogy, this is an old uh, theologian, uh, philosopher, uh, Van Til, he says, uh, he, he gives the picture of a child sitting on a father's lap, and he says, uh, he saw he was on a train, he said the child hit his father. And he's like, that's what? <coughs> he said, as I reflected on it, he says, I realized that the kid was only able to hit his dad because he was sitting on the lap. I wrestled with my, my boy. I let him get a couple blows on me. He, like if I really was fighting my son, there'd be a different, I wouldn't be up here, that's for certain. And so there's this picture here that rebellion actually only exists because God is patient. He's slow to anger. Yes, there is a promise, and we, we must not minimize, discount, or, or, or like dance around it, that there is a real wrath, a judgment of God. And when it comes, it will be swift, and it will be appropriate. That's what verse 12 is teaching. His wrath is quickly kindled. But even at this very moment, Christ upholds even those who ignore, deny, oppose, and hate him. Christ upholds them right now. And if you are standing in rebellion to God, if there's a part of your life that is holding, like, in rebellion to God, you should know that even right now, God is being patient with you. He is upholding you so that you might come and take refuge in him. The whole earth is his, and he shall reign because Jesus is king. And so every one of these areas is a call to see the goodness of God, that when he calls, it's for your good. It says he reigns with the iron rod. Well, the iron rod is also a shepherd's staff. That's that picture. And he pulled, like, it's, it's, a, it's a rod of, of discipline that fights his enemy, and it's also a rod that brings in his own. And so the call, church, is this, is that you would take refuge in him and that you would trust him.
Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to trust you? And as we are singing this song and we're hearing these lyrics, would we recognize, God, the opposition that is at work in our hearts and in our world, that we would not be blind to it, and so we wouldn't be too comfortable in the way that we live and operate in the world. And also when it comes to our own individual lives, God, that we would recognize these, these places and we would kiss your son. We would worship and love and adore our king. We would receive Jesus as our king. The earth would receive her king. And there would be the refuge that Jesus, you took the judgment in our place. You are the resurrected one, God's anointed one, the holy king. And so would we find in this church, would we find joy, joy in your kingdom, in your rule, in your reign, for your ways are only for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.